мной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент притих, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. In the 1920s and 1930s, over 10,000 Chinese communists traveled to the Soviet Union. Most studied, some even got married and had children. But for all, their time in the Soviet Union had a profound influence on their life, a romance with Russia that they brought back with them to China. What was this Chinese romance with the Russian Revolution all about? How did Russia influence these Chinese communists, many of whom would inhabit the upper echelons of the Chinese Communist Party in the 1950s? What happened to this romance after the Sino-Soviet split? Elizabeth McGuire joins me to talk about this torrent and fascinating love affair that continues to linger today. Elizabeth McGuire is an assistant professor of history at California State East Bay, where she specializes in global communism, specifically the relationship between modern Russia and China. She's the author of Red at Heart, How Chinese Communists Fell in Love with the Russian Revolution, published by Oxford University Press. Here is Elizabeth McGuire. So you, you have this, this book, um, Read at Heart, How Chinese Communists Fell in Love with the Russian Revolution. And this looks at this very interesting uh, Chinese cross-cultural romance with Russia. So I thought we'd start by just having you paint the picture of how is the Sino-Soviet relationship generally understood by historians and, and others, and how your book tries to paint a different picture of that standard story. Well... To answer it best, I'd have to go back to the spark. You know, there's always a spark that gets you going on a big research thing like this. And for me, it was, I was getting a master's degree at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. And I was a Russia, you know, specialist there. And I took a China class just for the heck of it. And I was in shock. I was like, oh, my God, all of this looks so Soviet. You know, you'd see a movie, it looked Soviet. You'd see a documentary, it looked Soviet. You'd see, you know, you'd read about what happened in China in the 50s, 60s, 70s. It felt so deeply Soviet. And it didn't feel ideological to me. It didn't feel, I was like, how did this happen? And so I went to the library, just like we all do. And I kept looking for books and the books that I found, and you know, you asked, well, how is it normally portrayed? The books that I found addressed a lot of different things. Like when did Marxism first get translated into Chinese? Or when did the first operatives from the Comintern, which was this big 
international underground network of communist operatives, very glamorous and cloak and dagger and all. But, um, or during the Cold War, of course, these common turn agents were the big boogeymen, right? Like the bad guys who were spreading communism. So it was almost like a disease paradigm. Like when did communism spread to China? And then they would look at common turn operatives, stuff like that. Or it would be about how Russia dominated or how would you put it? Like there was a narrative of how Russia funded and helped along this Chinese revolution. And then Mao came along and threw off the Russian traces and sort of made this revolution Chinese and his own. And that was a dominant paradigm, sort of this signification of the communist revolution. And then as you got later in time, though, there wasn't that much actually about the early relationship, but the big thing was the Sino-Soviet split in the 60s, you know, where the, these two communist powers decided that they had different versions of communism and they went on this big ideological rampage against each other and the press and they cut off relations. And so historians really focused on that. And why did that happen? And they sort of took for granted that in the 1950s, after China, you know, went communist in 1949, they just took for granted that in the 1950s, the Soviet Union and China were quote unquote friends or a happily married couple kind of in the and then, so their big question was, well, how did this happy thing turn terrible? And there was a Cold War lens because, of course, you know, when I was first looking at this stuff, it was the late 90s and early 2000s. And so, you know, yeah, the Soviet Union had collapsed, but scholars were just sort of picking themselves up and dusting themselves off and running to the archives looking for sensational new stuff. So everybody was looking at stuff like, well, what did Mao really say to Stalin in the meeting they had? Ooh, you know, here we found the notes, and it was all Mao and Stalin and Mao and Stalin and the split up. And I just kept thinking to myself, none of this to me explains how this happened in the first place. Like, Somehow there had to be some long-term human connection here because there's no way that something so Soviet could have happened in China without a bunch of people in the middle of that kind of running the, running the network of the human network, you know, between and like, shoot, you know, how did that translator who was with Mao at the meeting even learn Russian? You had to have language ties. You had to have people who were, it turned out, and I didn't put this in my book, but I had seen this documentary when I first took the China class. And I was, again, blown away by how Soviet it was. And just by chance, I eventually found the Chinese guy who shot the footage for that documentary. And I was like, how did you do this? How did it happen? And keep in mind, this is like the late 40s that he's shooting this stuff. And he's like, oh, I shot all the film and sent it to Moscow. 
And it turned out that he had studied in a Moscow film school in the 1930s. You know, and that was a time when supposedly Mao was signifying the revolution. So as I did more research, I started finding these little traces, like little memoirs by people who were Chinese but had spent time in Russia and I started finding this stuff and then I followed it really carefully. I started making a list of the heroes kind of of the story. I don't mean heroes like the good guys, but just sort of who are the protagonists of this human story. And I was just trying to tell, I mean, almost a backstory or an emotional story that made sense to me about how China even became so interested in Russian communism and how the process of cross-cultural sort of synthesis happened in the first place. Let me ask you about this emotional, because I think this is one of the things that I, is really interesting about the book in that rather than focusing, say, on you know the high politics or even the politics as such, the story you tell is one of personal connection, love, romance, breakup, family, and and you 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 start out by by talking about the the use of the metaphor of romance as kind of your narrative arc, uh, and it really structures the book. This idea of becoming lovers, becoming romantic, becoming a family, and then kind of breaking up. So, what is talk about the, your use of this idea of romance and how Chinese related to Russia? I would say that most people upon hearing the idea of a romance. And when I say people, I guess I mean scholars of the relationship between Russia and China, either under communism or in general. When they hear the idea of romance that I'm structuring the book this way, well, I've had conversations where people are a bit dismissive. Like, how could you say this is a romance? There was so much real politic behind this and there was so much tension and there was so much self-interest this couldn't possibly be a romance and i was like man that's a pretty you mean first comes love next comes marriage next comes the baby in the baby carriage don't you and i felt like the romances, the really great ones, right? Like think about literary romances, you know, the romances that are most compelling are the ones where there is a lot of storminess and anger and coming together and breaking apart and feeling like you hate that other person, but yet you can't get away from them. And, you know, kind of romance in the sense of, an organizing emotional principle for relationships. And of course, it's not the only one. You know, I could have written this like big brother, little brother, friends, teacher, student. But the reason I didn't is because those were familiar. In fact, in China, they actually called Russia the big brother. And anybody who does Chinese studies knows that in the 20th century. Exactly. Now, it's not to say, you know, and then some people would say, oh, but this isn't a reciprocal romance. This is asymmetrical in the sense that one of the parties, quote unquote, loved the other one more. 
And again, I said, well, what's new? I mean, how many romances do you know who are perfectly reciprocal all the time? And to me, there was this great moment in this romance that I don't really put in the book, but where finally, when the Soviet split happened, and this is actually where my research started because I couldn't read Chinese at first. So I had to use only Russian sources. And I wrote a little paper about Soviet reaction to the Cultural Revolution. And during the Cultural Revolution, when China is just spewing hatred at Russia, the Russians all of a sudden started scratching their heads and going, wait, what happened? And it was almost like this, you know, stereotypical womanizing kind of man loses his faithful wife that he just took for granted his whole life who always loved him no matter what and all of a sudden he stops and goes oh my god um and so there was a moment when russia realized the depth of its connection to china and felt like it had lost something big but that moment didn't come until the 1960s and until then it was very much, you know, China being infatuated. And when I say China, gee, I don't mean like really China, right? I'm talking about literate leftist intellectuals in the cities, basically. They are enamored of Russia. And, you know, when things go badly, they have existential crises, just like, you know, some young person who's in love and the person they're in love with says something that upsets them and they go into a two week, you know, funk because they just can't shake it in there. You know, it, it was like that. So, and I chose it, you know, so I chose it because it was unusual. And I also chose it because it was in the sources. And it was something in the sources that I had not seen treated anywhere else. And people sometimes mistake this as me saying, Oh, all the other paradigms are wrong. The big brother, little brother, teacher, student, whatever, that's wrong. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying there's this other strain, this other really compelling emotional strain. What was so surprising is, you know, amongst all these sort of humdrum weekly reports of what the Chinese were doing, you know, in their classes in Russia, there's all this, and you, you can see it in the book, you know, all this stuff about, love affairs between the students and what the students thought about love and i think my favorite document of all was one where the, it was called i think on love literature revolution or something and it was this guy ranting on and on about this very romantic german novel um the sorrows of young werther <laughs> And it was so surprising, right, because here are these Chinese communists in Russia in the 1920s, and the basic assumption was they were somehow getting indoctrinated and trained in this very sinister way. And in reality, this is just a bunch of young people, mostly guys, you know, kind of crazy with love and lovesick and, you know, having all these relationships and fretting about it and thinking to themselves, gee, how can I be a good communist and and be in love and is this okay and this guy wrote this long document just railing against the people who were trying to tell him that to be a good communist you couldn't 
really enjoy that kind of love. This is the thing too, like I, the other the impression you get rather quickly from the book is that for many of these mostly young Chinese men, communists, uh, that uh, Russia in the 1920s and into the 1930s is has this it's it's almost like a liberatory space they become liberated in in a certain way russia becomes a place to get out of the you know the things that you you know you can do things there you can't do back home and and this i think in, in a, an important mark in chinese history that you point out is that when the when the qing dynasty is overthrown in 1911 here you you get the first you know, wave of Chinese students going to Europe, and then of course they end up in Soviet Russia. So, paint a picture of what life in China was like uh, after 1911, and and the opportunities that the the new political situation opened for them. Well, I think there are so many different stories that you can tell about that time, and of course. I focus on leftists, right? Young people who would eventually become communists. But of course, there are all these other people too who are not communists and never become communists. Um, and so it's a pretty interesting situation because no matter who you are, if you're educated, you are against arranged marriage, at least in theory. In practice, a lot of people had a very hard time shaking those arranged marriages. And I talk about, you know, I have characters like this. Um, I found this one wonderful story of this young woman. Um, her name was Chen Bilan, so we'll just call her Chen to make it easy for listeners. but. You know, this woman, Chen, she was this sort of rambunctious young woman, and she wanted to chop off her hair in a bob, which was totally unthinkable at the time. You were supposed to keep your hair long. And this was a part of Confucianism, actually. There was an idea that your hair came from your parents, and you couldn't cut it because it belonged to them. And I think I'm getting this a little muddled because it's been a while since I was reading this stuff. But you couldn't cut your hair for a lot of reasons. And this woman wanted to cut her hair and she had this arranged marriage about to happen that her dad, who was ironically kind of a progressive guy who had studied in Japan and cut his own cue, that was the long ponytail that the Chinese men had to wear, cut it off you know so her dad was not this restrictive dad and yet even these relatively quote-unquote liberal or whatever you want to call them progressive families still had such strains such conservative strains about relationships and so she wants to throw off her arranged marriage and she has a really hard time and she keeps writing these letters to her dad and her so-called husband-to-be about it and finally she just runs off and joins the communists and eventually finds another guy just like her you know who had an arranged marriage and actually he he became a minor character in the book they're both in the book she's a big character in the sense that she has her own little chapter 
he originally had this long chapter and it was this hysterical story. It was really funny. This guy's name was Pung. And this Pung was born in this little tiny village in the remotest area of Hunan province, just totally remote. And he was supposed to become a farmer and he was, he had to marry this girl. And you asked about the 1911 revolution. Well, in his little village, all that happened was they took down one kind of set of rules or something from the village bulletin board and put up another one. You know, it was like, oh, well, revolution, revolution, we're just going along on our course. And so this poor guy, you know, here he is, and he's supposed to become a farmer and marry this woman. Well, he marries this woman because he's under so much pressure from his father to do it and his whole family. And he cannot have sex with her. He just can't. He won't. You know, and it turns into this, he's, he's really funny. He's kind of this melodramatic type who ended up in Paris as an anarchist or no, 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 a Paris as a um, Trotskyist, sorry. And, um, and his papers and Chen's papers, because they got married eventually, ended up in the Hoover archive, which is how, including her memoir, very long and very clear about her life. And he wrote a memoir in French. So because that anyway, it's a long story. But um, so in his memoir, he describes, you know, just he cannot quote consummate this marriage. He cannot do it. And he runs off to this temple. There were these temples at the top of hills where people, I guess, Taoists maybe would go or Buddhist monks or something in total isolation and wander the wild. And, and get all spiritual and contemplate the world and and be considered a little bit of a lunatic for a while. And so he took he takes himself off to this mountaintop little quote unquote temple and you know everybody thinks he's basically gone nuts. Finally he somehow finagles to get to go to the um you know, there were these, they were called normal schools. They were basically schools to train teachers. Because before 1911 in China, if you were going to get an education, you got it in the village clan temple. So whatever clan family was richest ran a little village school and, and you would just go. It was completely private. There were no state-sponsored public schools at all. He, then after 1911, the new Republican government goes on a crusade to open schools for everybody or maybe not everybody, but more people than had been getting educated before. And they were trying to promote, you know, a new kind of state. So they thought we need a new kind of education. So they opened all these, they were called normal schools to teach new teachers and a lot of these young people who were kind of worked up you know the revolution had happened but nothing had changed they were still you know and if you're 18 years old and your parents are adamant that you marry this person that you don't aren't in love with that's going to become the dominant issue in your life you know or if they want you to become a farmer and you don't want to do that those are dominant issues for you. So how, so how did these people end up in Soviet Russia? 
Well, that's the, to me, that was the most amazing thing. And that's why I let the whole first part of my book be about the journeys to Russia. And I take, I, I, in the end, you know, there were so many fascinating journeys, but you can't put everything in a book. So I tried to pick some really compelling ones that were compelling for different reasons. And what was amazing to me is how did these people, you know, these Pungs and these Chuns, and how did they go from some rural place or the domination of their parents and end up all the way in Moscow? This is where those common turn operatives that historians like to focus on spreading the spread, quote unquote, of communism come in. And the story I tell is really different because in my mind, there is no way that some single Russian dude can show up in some Chinese city, snap his fingers and like the Pied Piper run around with a bunch of communists behind him. Sorry, that's not how things work. That's a push factor. And that was the assumption a lot of historians made about how did this happen in their mind. The Russians came and they just grabbed a bunch of Chinese by the scruff of the neck, drug them off, and doctrinated them. No, but they were important because, you know, they'd be in some city, not some teeny tiny village, but the provincial capital or, you know, a lot of them were in big cities like Beijing and Shanghai and Tianjin, you know, cities that were remarkably large. Are these Russians or Chinese? No, these are Russians because this is the 1920s, remember. And this is a time when, when Russia is hell-bent on world revolution. And they're sending operatives anywhere and everywhere that they think they can conjure up a communist party and create a revolution. And obviously, China is a big prize because it's such a big country. And it had had a Republican revolution and it was falling apart. That's the other thing about life. You asked about life for young Chinese. Well, actually, China had completely fragmented by 1920. And there were giant areas controlled by all these different, you know, warring warlords. And the quote unquote national government only controlled a limited area. And so it was also really chaotic. And so what would happen is this Peng, for instance, and Chun, she also got to go to a normal school to, to become a teacher. They wanted to become teachers. So they'd go to this provincial capital, like for, for Peng, it was Changsha, which just happened to be the same place that Mao Zedong was from. But um, Peng didn't know and didn't like Mao. So they'd go to this school and then there'd be some communist, some Chinese communist. And that Chinese communist in this provincial capital would have ties to other communists in bigger cities. And those other communists would have ties to some common turn agent, some Russian, but you know, sometimes they weren't Russian. Like one of the most important ones in the twenties was a Dutch guy, a Dutch communist who had spent a lot of time in Indonesia riling Indonesians up to become communists and then you know so they're not necessarily russian but so they have ties you know there's this fragile human chain and the common turn agent says to his chinese friend or co-communist or whatever and then keep in mind the chinese didn't even really totally know what communism was they just wanted a revolution but anyway 
he'd say, hey, you know what? We're opening a school for revolutionaries. Let's find some people to go there. So if you're, it sounds like if you're, you know, a, a, a young Chinese person, you're, you know, either from a city or if you're from some provincial part of the country, you know, life is unstable. And if you're ambitious enough and you're embedded or get drawn into this movement, you can basically, you know, use those networks to as a as a form of kind of improving your life. Yes. And for some, upward mobility was a thing in the sense that, and I can't remember if I go into this too much in the book, but you know, at this point, lots of Chinese are going abroad for education for the first time. And the rich ones went to the United States. Um, and then there was this work-study movement to France during World War One, when tons of Chinese had gone to build railroads and work in factories in Europe. But those were workers. And then these sort of radical young students knew that France had had a revolution of its own. And they thought, okay, well, we can't afford to go to France, but what we can do is go and work like these workers and then study at night. It was called the work study movement. So, but, so that was one way to get out and go get an education, you know, and then there were others in Germany. The big one though was Japan because Japan was right there. And of course that reversed a, a, a relationship, very old one where Japan was not subservient to China exactly, but, you know, China was considered, well, Japanese went to China to study for a long, you know, hundreds of years. And now suddenly Chinese are going to Japan and that's because Japan had had the Meiji restoration and, and was kind of mainlining European, Western European ideas, including communism. So a lot of them went to Japan. And, and Russia was really hard to go to before the revolution. The Russian government did not like to have foreign students come. They regulated it. I found in the archives where, you know, they approved or not almost on a student-by-student -student basis. Whereas once the revolution happened, the Bolsheviks were like, let's get all the revolutionaries here. And they opened these special schools in Moscow. And so you're right in the sense that you know, in the grand scheme of things, think how many people are in China. And even if only, you know, even if 10,000 Chinese, which is, you know, roughly the numbers in the 20s and 30s together, went to study, it's not that many. And yet, if you go back and calculate the membership of the Chinese Communist Party in the 1920s, the Chinese Communist Party is founded in 1921 only, and the numbers are teeny tiny. I mean, you know, I can't even remember, but they number in the tens and then the hundreds and then the thousands reaching a peak in 1927 and then radically declining. But we're still only talking about thousands, tens of thousands, hmm. maybe. Oh, wow. So that's a large. So what you're saying is this kind of a large percentage that's going to Russia. Yes. And so the formative. The Chinese communists go to Russia, you know, some of them had spent time in France before, but. But what I'm trying to say is that by the time the Chinese Communist Party was big enough to take over the country, and then they took over the country, and then they thought, wait a minute, we need help. We need to know how to even run this communist society. We got no idea. Then they went ransacking their 
sort of collective experiences of how countries are run in the first place, you know, in general, never mind a communist one. You know, these guys are young intellectuals. And then they become guerrilla warriors and they attract a lot of people who are, you know, young, rural, poor young people. But the educated ones who are supposed to be managing the country ransack their brains and they go, oh, the one experience that we have all kind of had is we went to Russia or we knew someone close to us who did and we heard a lot about it. And so while the numbers in the 1920s and 30s are small, anybody who survived the whole thing, you know, the whole communist, the difficulties of being a Chinese communist in the 30s when the nationalist Chiang Kai-shek took over and started suppressing them. And then when the Japanese attacked, if you survived and you made it through all of that, the civil war in China, by that point, you were very elite in the party. You were definitely in a leadership position. And so, again, I actually went back and counted the numbers in the Politburo and the numbers. And again, I don't have them at the tip of my fingers, but it was amazing how many through the 50s, it was way disproportional, the numbers who'd studied in Russia to the population, obviously, or even the party. <clears throat> For the lack of a better term, I think the father of uh, Chinese Russophilia, uh, his, uh, his, he was a journalist, um, uh, Chu uh, Chu Bai. Yeah, excuse me, Chu Chu Bai. Yeah, and we'll just call him Chu for the. Yeah, talk talk about him and his importance in this this early period of the Chinese romance with with Russia. Oh, he is one of my very favorite characters. He's one of my, you know, when you're a historian and you focus on human beings, right, rather than <clears throat> sort of general phenomena, but you're focused on people. And you try to research them and you try to understand their lives. Well, at some point, you're almost living with these people, you know. And I would spend so much time just thinking about this guy. I mean, there were a few of these people that even to this day almost feel like people that I know or people who who are who I'm close to somehow, even though obviously they're dead and I never met them. Um, but he's one of my super favorite people because he is this very kind of neurotic, flighty, romantic young guy. He like wants to become a poet. He's again, one of these guys from a provincial gentry family. So a family that in theory, you know, had some status in a village. He, he was educated, but Again, they were going bankrupt. His family and his family and gentry in general were having financial issues, and a lot of the early communists, like him, were actually gentry sons. And I think that's true in Russia too, right? At yeah, first, kind of downwardly mobile. Yeah, downwardly mobile aristocrats, basically, and um, that's him. And you know, his father is this ne'er do well who smokes opium and basically, you know flitters away the family money and his mom commits suicide and you know he just goes into this he wants to become a poet but then all this happens and he has to become one of these teachers in a 
village and he hates it. And so he has a cousin who's in Beijing and he's a smart guy. And so he wants to take the test that you have to take to get into Beijing University, which is the best to this day school in China, the best university. But it's really hard to get into and he doesn't get into it. And then he has this cousin just by total random chance, right? These things have to happen by chance at first. His cousin had a relationship of some kind with a guy who ran this Russian language school. And this, this Russian language school had actually been founded originally when Russia built a railroad that ran all the way to the Far East and part of it ran through um, Chinese territory. It was called the Chinese Eastern Railroad, the CER. When they were trying to build this thing and then trying to run it, man it, manage it, they ran into this huge problem, which is basically no Chinese really spoke Russian. There were traders at the border who spoke kind of a pidgin Russian, right? Traders. But they didn't speak Russian like you needed to to be a railroad official. And so the railroad started this school in Beijing to teach Chinese Russian. And at this point, there aren't even any good dictionaries between Russian and Chinese. The only ones are from, they're like religious, from the church, the Russian Orthodox Church that had been present in China. Um, but, you know, that doesn't really help you that much to become a railroad official. So Chu doesn't get into the big university and so he's got to figure out how to make ends meet and you know stay in the capital and get an education and so through family ties he goes to this Russian language school which he doesn't even like at first but then he's a very literary guy and in the school they the teachers have these little snippets of Russian literature. And I think any of us who've learned Russian probably had this experience, right? You're in, you're in your first year Russian class, you can't actually read anything at all, but then you get a little bit better and they give you these little snippets of great literature, right? Like I remember memorizing um, some Akhmatova poem and a little snippet of Push, Pushkin, you know, and this great literature. And so that happened to him. And like so many people who become Russophiles, you know, Russia lovers, he just fell in love with this literature and this language. And then at the same time, there's this very progressive student movement going on. It's called the May 4th movement, started in 1919. And schools, each school sent a representative to these um, big marches and demonstrations and his school sent him and so he got involved in this kind of politics this kind of new young mass politics and then in that he gets exposed a little bit to communism and then communism is russian and then all the pieces fall into place for him right here he's fallen in love with this language and now he's caught up in this kind of radical fervor and then it turns out that Russia is the place of revolution and he knows the language. And guess what? He's one of the only, in fact, for, for years, he's basically the only um, Chinese communist who has good Russian because here he's been, you know, toiling away unhappily learning this language basically and in a systematic way, right? 
And so he's got the training under his belt. And there he is. And then the Chinese start getting interested in knowing, well, gee, what's actually happening over there? And they hadn't had journalists. I mean, it's crazy. So this big newspaper hunts around for some Chinese guy who's willing to go to Russia because, you know, a lot of people had heard this is the Civil War period, right? So, you know, or just after the Civil War. So people, Chinese people are thinking Russia is this chaotic, dangerous, civil war-ridden place, just like their own country, right? The warlords. So there's not a lot of attraction there. So they have to find someone who's A, willing to go. B, speaks Russian well enough. And C, is actually can write and is interested in being a reporter. Like that narrows your pool a lot. So they find him and he agrees to go. You got to imagine like what the heck that must have been like, you know, to agree to, you know, leave and get on the Trans-Siberian and go off to Moscow. He had a friend who went with him who was also supposed to be a journalist and was a journalist, but just fell out of history, just didn't ever make a mark. So, yeah, that's how he goes. So what are, what are some of the, like, what did these people um, experience? What did they, what did, what did they observe about life in early Soviet Russia? Um, and, and, and how did this shape them, you know, as people and as communists? Well, this is a little bit where my romance um, idea comes in, because if you know Russian history from the 1920s, a lot of what I say will be, you know, expected and, oh, yeah, of course. But, you know, for the Chinese, this is all really crazy and new. And what happens to Chu specifically is he gets off the Trans-Siberian. And the whole country is in a famine. So he's starving, completely, totally starving. And some Pravda representative picks him up from the railroad station and takes him to this hotel where they're sort of putting up these foreign um, journalist types. And, you know, it's some old, this hotel is some old aristocrat's house that they turned into this kind of seedy, shabby, rundown hotel. And they just stick in there and they tell him, okay, here's what you're going to cover. And they basically tell him where to go, what to do, get him as, um, passes or whatever to whatever these events are. So he's kind of at, theoretically, he's at their mercy or at their bidding, right? I mean, here he is, this Chinese guy just showing up in this famine-stricken country and Sure, he speaks some Russian, but you know how it is. You learn a language and you think you know it, and then you get there and you're like, oh my gosh, I don't understand anything these people are saying, and these people don't understand me. And I thought I knew this language. So he's also undergoing this real crash course in Russian. So he's starving. He's in this place that's freezing cold. <laughs> he's, you know, and he's picking up the language, whether he likes it or not, and he's being carted around to these events, like um, the funeral for this big anarchist, you know, because the communists were really happy he died. Uh, and because, you know, the anarchists are kind of competitors in the early 20s for the communists. And so they, they take him there, you know, or they take him to some demonstration, or they take him to a school to observe, you know, you can, 
if you're a Russian historian, you know what they do. They sort of took you around. But here's the rub. They couldn't control what he wrote for the audience back home because he's writing this in Chinese, sending it back to a Chinese newspaper. And just as very few Chinese spoke Russian, so also very few Russians spoke Chinese. And then most of those were old regime types, you know, white Russians who were either fleeing and going to the Far East, right? A lot of white Russians went to Shanghai and Harbin. Um, so either you left or you, you became some Chinese teacher for Russians in some school. But nobody really could bother to sit there with his Chinese language reports and read them and censor them or whatever. You know, it just wasn't like that in the early 20s. So he'd, he'd go to this stuff, but here he was, this kind of flighty, romantic young guy. And so he wrote what he wrote, how he wrote it, because he was ambitious as a writer and he wanted to make a name for himself. And he knew just how to capture the imaginations of young people like him back in China. And so while he did go to the anarchist funeral or whatever and report on it, he also wrote this kind of crazy, amazing, imaginary love story between himself and um, Sophia Tolstaya, who was the granddaughter of Tolstoy. And Tolstoy was really popular in China um, because, of course, Tolstoy had had his own, you know, kind of progressive political thing. And, you know, he was an anarchist. And he was one, because he was an anarchist, he was one of the earliest um, Russian authors to be translated into Chinese at all around the 1911 revolution when anarchists were kind of, there were anarchists in China. And so they translated Tolstoy first for that, but then of course they got into the literature and coincidentally when Chu is in his Russian language school, Anna Karenina gets translated for the first time into Chinese. And again, you know how it is. You're a student of language. You try to read the language, but you're also reading a lot of literature and translation. So so here he's got this romantic idea. You know, he's reading this, you know, Anna Karenina stuff. And then he and he knows that all of his his types of people back home are rebelling against their arranged marriages. There's actually a new book about um, love. There's a bunch of books about kind of the dawning of love in China in the 20s, but one of the neat ones is called When True Love Came to China, um, and it's about the 20s. So true love was coming to China, and so Tolstoy's popular. True love is coming to China. Chu is romantic and ambitious. He goes to a meeting of, it was called the Prolet which was this, you know, or, organization um, dedicated to spreading a new kind of proletarian or workers' culture. And they had these meetings in Moscow where the artists would get together and maybe exhibit work or do readings or whatever. And then all these people would show up to them. And Chu meets Sofia Tolstoya at one of these meetings. And he goes nuts. He's like, oh, my God, I am meeting Tolstoy's granddaughter. And he strikes up a friendship with her, and she actually brings him back to the Tolstoy home, you know. And he meet, he hangs out with the Tolstoys, you know. 
and and he writes this up in great detail and great length for the readers back home in kind of installments and again normal historians they just kind of overlook that whole section of his writing because they're like what's this this isn't relevant you know we're talking about the spread of communism and i'm reading this stuff at great difficulty mind you like i'm learning chinese as i'm reading this and it's very difficult to read because it's from the 20s so i'm reading it really slowly and looking up tons of characters and but it's so fascinating that i'm so compelled to read it and you know he he writes this totally wonderful romance and and he makes out like he writes this love poem for her in chinese and classical chinese and and you know he meets her and he starts he starts the minute he meets her in his diary and his accounts you know he just kind of goes lovesick but the thing is we don't really know if that's true i have a feeling my own feeling is that he actually was had a relationship with someone else because he'll talk about sitting with girls or being with girls or but the way he writes it he sort of lets the readers believe that it's her and he writes her a love poem and he says he almost kisses her and oh my gosh if you're a radical guy back home and you read about this i mean this guy is going to be a rock star to you right holy cow he actually went to the capital of world revolution and met tolstoy's granddaughter and almost kissed her oh my goodness so what so a lot of these a lot of these guys like this they go there and some women too they go to russia you know they they you know get into relate romantic relationships some of them get married um what is a uh, family life like for these you know now chinese russian couples well it depends on the years that you're talking about because the thing to remember is that the chinese guys because this is a phenomenon very clearly of chinese men and russian women this is not chinese women and russian men um so these chinese guys are in schools that are created to teach people from other countries how to foment a revolution so they're in these schools and so the women that they're meeting are variety of people right cafeteria workers russian language teachers you know different i don't know kinds of communist women you know maybe in city organizations but they're meeting these young russian women and in the early 20s remember very early 20s there's a famine so a lot of young women who are hungry a lot of aristocratic young women who you know were the mighty who had fallen and who were now acting as like secretaries for Bolsheviks and stuff. So there's, you know, women kind of floating around in Russia. And then the Chinese Revolution in the mid 1920s becomes a sensation in Russia. And so suddenly it becomes if you're a, a young Russian woman and you meet a Chinese guy, well, this is an upwardly mobile romance for you. And one of the most prominent, I think, and sweet romances in my book is between exactly such a young aristocratic girl 
you know, whose mom ends up having to become a cleaning lady. And she can't even join the Communist Party because of her background. And she ends up going to the Far East because in the Far East, it was easier to become a communist, right? Fewer people wanted to go there. So if you went there, she joined the Komsomol there. And then she's in, um, I want to say Vladivostok, but she's also, can't remember. She's in another city. But anyway, she's there. And naturally, she comes in, up against Chinese men and meets Chinese guys there. And so she, you know, to her, it's not so crazy or unusual. She's got some familiarity. and She actually has a crush on a Chinese guy. They play tennis, the Chinese, and she thinks this is so cool. She goes to play tennis. And she's in love with this guy. Or, you know, she has a crush on him, like, real youthful crush. And then she goes back to Moscow, and, of course, she keeps her friends and her friend circles. And so in Moscow now, she's bumping up against Chinese guys. And this is now the 1930s. So in the 20s, you ask about family life. Well, in the 20s, some Russian guy would meet some cafeteria worker and start having sex with her. And maybe she got pregnant, and God only knows what happened to that child. Or sometimes um, the children were sent to special a special orphanage, which is actually the subject of my second book that I'm working on now, this orphanage. It was a second, it was a, the Russians wanted to have a whole network of orphanages or schools for the children of foreign revolutionaries. And they had, if you go back in the archive, you can see they're planning this giant network of these things so that communists say in Germany who are being, you know, violently suppressed by the Nazis can send their children to Russia to be raped, you know, safely. So do a lot of a lot of a lot of the children of like so you have a Chinese communist goes to Russia, hooks up with a woman, Russian woman, or maybe gets married, uh, has a child and then ha goes back to China. So this is what the child or some maybe something happens to to the mother. I don't know. But the, the children end up in uh, some of these children end up in these orphanages. Absolutely. That, and, and they're not these orphanages in the end. Oh, I don't mean to say like you're saying these orphanages. I'm just saying that the, the Russians or the Bolsheviks, they envision this giant network. And in the end, this giant network ended up being one school. <laughs> um, and it was a very sort of symbolic school. Um, children from revolutionaries all over the world, you know, including super famous ones, you know, leaders of, well, the secretary of the American Communist Party, of the Polish Communist Party, you know, all over. Tito, his kid was there for, for a time. Mao's kids went there. Everybody who was anybody's kids went there. Um, and the school was, is still open, actually, as an orphanage. Um, and it was open as a school or orphanage for communists until the communist regime collapsed in 1991. Um, and so it has, it has um, reunions and people come from all over the world to go to those reunions every five years. And this is actually how I, because to find your way in with, with these people, I mean, you can't just show up somewhere and yell out, I'm interested in children of Chinese communists who spent time in Russia. 
<laughs> I mean, how are you going to even find those people? But I heard about the school, and so I just showed up at its reunion in 2003. And I just started, I just showed up. It was in this, it wasn't even in Moscow. It's in Ivanova, which, you know, it isn't like Siberia, but it is, I mean, bare minimum, a six-hour drive out of Moscow to get there. And um, so anyway, I met these kids is the point. And then, then I had a personal connection to them and their lives and their parents. And so you asked about family life. Well, yes, sometimes the children of the mixed marriages ended up in that school. Sometimes the Russian women just kept the child and kind of disappeared from history, that is, in the sense that they disappear out of documentation and you don't know what happened to them. You know, Tasya, the cafeteria worker who's noted as being pregnant by a Chinese guy in the archives, it's not like Tasya, they're not going to keep track of Tasya. She's just going to go off back to where she came from and raise this kid, basically. Plus, the abortion rate's really high. Remember that. And so a lot of these babies are getting aborted. Before, you know, so there's a lot of abortion, a lot of, but yeah, a handful go to this special school. Um, and the the family life for communists in the 20s who are in these schools is kind of non-existent in the sense that if they do have a baby, it's not like they're in a little apartment somewhere with their Russian girlfriend or wife raising a child in some sense that we understand. If the kid is in the school, somehow there's a nursery and it's off there and you know it's not there is no real family life but then when in the 30s though it's a little different ironically and my heroine heroine who um fell in love with the tennis player and then comes back to russia she just meets in some dinner party this guy who's real quiet and she doesn't know who he is or anything but he kind of starts romancing her and he turns out to be Lili San, who was this major, he was actually the chairman of the Communist Party before Mao. And they fall in love and they have children. And it's a long, wonderful, you know, even now I'm talking about goosebumps, you know, wonderful romantic story of their relationship through, um, through time. Like all the way, she lived to be 101 wrote a memoir and I think she let's see she I can't she was born in like 1913 or something so she died in like 2014 and I met her and I talked to her and I hung out at her house and you know it was amazing so anyway you're at you asked about family life and the point is it was tough so how did you know it's clear like it's it's the the picture you're painting is I mean, it's incredibly intimate in the sense that it's not just, you know, Chinese communists going and hanging out in Russia and kind of being dazzled by it and then just moving on. It's it's making a major impact on their personal life and their outlook on life. So when what happens after the Chinese Revolution and, and the Cultural Revolution? How does this romance towards Russia change with these two major events? Well, when you're fighting a civil war... You're just fighting a civil war, you know, all these ideas go out the window. But then the communists win and start running the country in 1949 as best they can. And they need help. This is very pragmatic. And in my whole romance paradigm, this is a moment when these two people, you know, Russia and China, 
had been having this kind of torrid romance and then suddenly for very practical reasons they need to get married get official right they need to get hitched and 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 make a make a real quote family because because russia finally has a major indigenous you know they they rolled their tanks into Eastern Europe and got communist regimes there that way. But China was an indigenous revolution. Sure, helped on by them, but it was it was a Chinese revolution. So here they had this big partner and, you know, they, they were happy to have this partner. They needed this partner. And China is in desperate need of assistance, material assistance. They need they need to build factories. They need they need to know how to run factories. They need to know how to run everything. And not a lot of material from this came into my book because you can't put everything in. But I found in the Chinese Foreign Ministry archives, which had just opened up when I was in China, I found all this amazing documentation of this where people would just literally write and say, how do you run a library, (laughs) Soviet government? How do you, you know, anything you can imagine. How do you... um, how do you breed livestock, Soviet government? Because these are communists who don't know and they need to be running the show. So they need big time money and experts. They need stuff. And it's kind of like, oh, now they've had this baby finally, this <laughs> revolution baby. And now they're sitting there and they got to raise it and they don't, they need help. They need Russian money. And so they get married. And for a time, for people like, um, Lisa, who was the 101-year-old lady who fell in love with the tennis player and then got married to the the leader, you know, and close friend of Mao, actually, of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and she becomes a tutor to Jiang Qing, who's, you know, the dragon, the white bone dragon of the Cultural Revolution. But in the 1950s, she's just, you know, Mao's girl, and she wants to learn Russian. And so... They're looking for someone politically reliable. And Lili San's wife is definitely politically reliable, so they get her to tutor. So these couples and this relationship do have this kind of nice, warm period in the 1950s. And Lili San actually sends for Lisa's mother, you know, and they have more children, and it's very nice. And then, of course, the split happens, and... Suddenly, anybody who has any Russia connection at all is seriously persecuted. And they're not the only ones who are persecuted. Of course, lots of people are, but they're really targeted. Right. What, what, is, what, is, the, what is the reasoning for the what, – what causes the split? Like, what is the reasoning, the general reasoning for the split? Well, I'd say there's two lines. One is that, of course, Russia is in the era of the thaw under Khrushchev who makes the secret speech denouncing Stalin. And here we have Mao and China trying to, in their minds, they're going to do a Stalinist revolution because that's what they saw and experienced and knew and hoped for. And so they're really upset about that. And they paper it over as long as they can. And, you know, Russia keeps sending money. Khrushchev is actually very generous with the Chinese. And then at some point, this becomes untenable, just, you know, I don't know, on ideological grounds or whatever, that traditional story. And that story has been told by historians ad nauseum, you know, over and over. But there's another line of it, which is that 
for my people, the people who've had this lifelong connection to Russia, you know, now they're in this mature phase and these Russians are coming and being experts and dictating to them what to do and how to do it. And, you know, they're weary. I mean, they're trying and they have this life connection, but geez, they're in their fifties now, you know, they're tired of this relationship. So there's a double, there's a, it's a double thing that goes on. But if you're a couple and you're married like Lisa and Lily San, they kill Lily San and they put Lisa in this elite prison in solitary confinement for eight years. And finally, what are what are some of the um, the legacies that you can point to of this Chinese Russia romance, the ups and downs, and the topsy turviness of it, and the passion and the the revulsion after all these years? What what happens? You know, after you know, in the late Soviet period, after the Soviet Union collapses? And are there any, like, legacies you can point to in China today? Sure. I mean, if you read, you know, anything like Foreign Affairs or whatever, there's even kind of a joke right now out there um, about a bromance, you know, between um, between Putin and all of a sudden I'm just going to blank Xi. on his name. Xi. Yeah, Xi Jinping, yeah. Um, they call it a bromance and this sounds silly, but you know, Xi Jinping's wife is a singer. And the part I didn't talk about is the fact that, you know, once the communists are in control, they massively propagate Russian culture, language, songs, movies, books. And so anybody who was around in the fifties and sixties, you know, the, the culture of their youth is very Russian. And then to this day, actually, I was wandering around doing my research in this park in Beijing, and I hear this Russian music, and I come, and there's all these Chinese people with an accordion singing Russian music in Chinese, but it's Russian translated. And so there's a, so Xi Jinping's wife is a singer, and she can sing these Russian songs, and, and Chinese love these Russian songs, you know, love them. And you can go online and see these amazing performances on YouTube of these Chinese people singing these, you know, Moscow Nights or whatever, these, these Russian songs. Uh, like and this so, Russian pop stuff or like the Estrada from the like 60s and 70s kind of stuff? The, their favorites are the wartime songs. And they know songs that everyone in Russia has forgotten. It's funny. Yeah. And so what I would say in general is that on the one hand, before my romance, before that, honestly, China and Russia could have cared less about each other. I mean, they barely had a border. Nobody spoke each other's languages except some wacko specialists off in Petersburg or whatever. And after my romance, hey, they're forever linked. You know, even look, the news yesterday, you know, Russia and China are trying to take advantage of Trump to roll back human rights or whatever. And we put this spin on it because to us, Russia and China are kind of threatening as potential great power rivals. So in the American news, it's very, but on the other hand, if you read the news, hey, they're connected. And I, on the one hand, you know, you can see these little traces like Xi Jinping's wife singing Russian songs. But to me, the big story is they're related. They'll forever be related. That was Elizabeth McGuire, an assistant professor of history at Cal State East Bay where she specializes in global communism, specifically the relationship between modern Russia and China. 
She's the author of Reddit Heart, How Chinese Communists Fell in Love with the Russian Revolution, published by Oxford University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and listeners like you. If you like this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye! Better